Let's pray together. My Father, I pray this morning that you would help this people to take God's word seriously. I pray, O oh God, that you would deliver us from hearts of unbelief or hearts of disobedience or hearts of unwillingness that our attitudes and our thought life and our actions would reflect, O oh God, your word to us. Your word is instructions for our lives, for our hearts. You reveal to us who you are and who we are. And so, O oh God, I pray as the, the scriptures are open to us this morning, that we will come with a heart that is hungry and open and willing and that you would ask us, O oh Lord, to search us and see if there be any wicked way in us, O oh God. And then may we turn from that wickedness that we might serve you gladly and with willing hearts. So Lord, bless your word to us today. And I pray that we will come to it with a seriousness that is appropriate in light of the, the, the significance of having the very word of God available to us. I pray that you will help me, O oh God, to bring it and proclaim it and teach it accurately, that your truth might shape and reshape our minds, our thinking, and our hearts and then our behavior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, there is a sin that man commits that we tend to minimize, but that God intends to completely smash. And to that we will give attention this morning as we study our fourth minor prophet. Frank Gabaline, uh, classic scriptural commentator from a generation ago, illustrated in a, um, a verbal vignette the, the matter that we will attend to today. He, he poses a, a hypothetical conversation that someone might have with another person as they describe still another person. And, and it might go something like this. Oh, that, that guy, he's a really good guy, but he's a little bit proud. Say, so, oh, okay, okay. Or we will describe a second guy this way. Oh, he's a really good guy, but he's a little bit of a thief. What? And our reaction is, why, is, why would our reaction, why would most of our reactions, and you, you, uh, you played into it perfectly, why would most of us be, well, he's a really good guy, he's a little bit proud, and we're like, yeah, okay, that's fine. But he's a really good guy, and he's a little bit of a thief. We're like, huh? Oh. See, I would submit to you, and I think what we're going to find today, and what we find throughout all of the scriptures, is that the first guy is a huge problem for God. The little bit proud guy. So if you have your Bibles, and I know you do, and you rustled the pages for Pastor Nick last week, 
I'm thinking, he's the young guy. He should be looking for technology. I'm looking for the pages. We're going to look at Obadiah today, the fourth minor prophet. I must tell you, though, if you were to bump into a Jewish man or a Jewish woman who knows Hebrew, and you said to them, turn to Obadiah, they would look at you like a deer in the headlights. They've never heard of Obadiah. They have heard of Obadiah. Everybody repeat after me, Obadiah. You'll never see Obadiah again the same. It's Obadiah. It's two Hebrew words put together, Abad, which means servant, Yah of Yahweh, servant of the Lord, Obadiah. When they name their kids Obadiah, which they don't, they call him Obadiah. But so that you don't get annoyed with me this morning, I will still keep using the word Obadiah because you will think, who does he think he is, Mr. Hebrew? And that would really be an illustration of the sermon today, of pride and powerlessness, of pride and powerlessness. God has something to say to you today about pride and powerlessness. Throughout all of Scripture, I would submit to you, throughout all of Scripture, there is a human condition that God intends to crush. God opposes the proud. And we're going to see here just how significantly he opposes the proud. It's a little book, the book Obadiah, it's a very small book, the smallest book in, in, in the Old Testament, it has no chapters. When you say Obadiah 1, it's not chapter 1, it's verse 1. And so there's just 21 verses, but they are power-packed verses whereby God speaks out once again with great authority and great vigor and great passion concerning something that really matters to the heart of God. To those of us who have ever felt the pain of powerlessness, wondering where is God? Has he withdrawn from me? Why are, why are those, the, the powerful uh, oppressing me? Or for those of you who have ever wondered, why is it that the profane, those who lift themselves up with arrogance are, 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 are always doing fine and doing well, seem to be getting all the breaks and seem to be getting all, the upper hand over everything? Have you ever wondered that? If your heart has ever cried out to the Lord, where is God where is his love that he has promised to me? If you cried out, where are his promises? Or how is it that God has shown love to me? It certainly doesn't feel like it. It certainly doesn't look like it. Or if you've ever cried out, Why, how can God stand by and witness all the oppression that is upon my life by the arrogant and the proud? Why does he stand by silently if he loves me? He doesn't step in. To all of you who've ever cried out one of those prayers, you have experienced why God hates pride. And in Obadiah, he says so. There are two basic directions in life. You can be a servant of the Lord, as Obadiah's name means, or you can be stuck on yourself, all about yourself. There's going to be two kinds of people in this world, servants of the living God or stuck on themselves. 
And they are represented in this very little book. Two basic directions. Determined, of course, in terms of direction by how you devote your life. Are you a servant of the Lord or are you stuck on yourself? It's about the graced and the proud represented here with two nations, Israel and Edom. Those two nations. And so um, today I want to uh, point out to you three kind of in this text, three sections. Uh, what is pride? Uh, what does pride do? And what does God intend to do about it? All right? And in particular, what and how should God's people respond? So what is pride? What does pride do? And what does God intend to do about it? Or what should God's people do? So I want to start out with a question. What burns the heart of God? And we're going to take three sections in this amazing book. And I'll point it out to you in verse 3. At the very end of the verse, this is what really burns the heart of God. When somebody says this, who can bring me down to the ground? With uh, all of the arrogance and pride uh, oozing from this individual, they call out, who can bring me down to the ground? Now, the um, text highlights the issue of pride. It highlights what God is planning to do about it. And, and pride itself is portrayed as the, um, the, the, the standard characteristic of the godless. At its core obscenity, it, it illustrates the kind of person who will trade God in for personal assets. And that's precisely what the nation of Edom is all about here. So as we start out in verse 1, we get the genre of the text. It's a vision of Obadiah. And then it begins this way. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. By the way, the, uh, the sovereign Lord here is literally what God, God says about Edom. It's, it's the, you have this sense of the proud nation of Edom uh, beating their chest saying who can bring me down and God speaks out from heaven and and it says here this is what Adonai Yahweh or literally two names for God what God God says it's an emphasis on the divine one of heaven speaks out you know already it's not a fair fight when God God is against you you are in deep, deep weeds. And so he speaks out. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise up and let us go against her for battle. God has declared war on Edom. God here is declaring war on pride in a very practical book called Obadiah. And God, throughout all of Scripture, wants all people to know, and in particular His people, to know that God opposes the proud. You don't want to be opposed by God. You don't want to. I certainly don't want God declaring war on me. God declares war here, and He says what He's going to do. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock. In other words, 
You are, you, you are too big for your britches, Edom. You are too big not to fail. In, in their mind, they, they consider themselves too big to fail. They're talking here about they live in the clefts of rock. They live high. They live in rocks. This word, um, rocks, is uh, translated selah, which literally means Petra, the capital of where these people live. This is Petra. For those of you who've been there, you know uh, the visual behind it. You know what it looks like. It's, like, it's an outstanding, uh, breathtaking place where master craftsmen, in ways that are inexplicable, uh, archaeologists still do not know how they carved out these amazing uh, uh, places and places to live in the clefts of the rocks. And so at 5,000 feet in the air, they live in the heights. They live in the rocks. And there's narrow canyons to get into Petra that basically a small militia could hold off a large army. They were, they were invincible, humanly speaking. And they became proud and arrogant who can bring us down? Today, Petra is nothing but a vacation spot spectacular. There are no people living there. It's just an archaeological backwater of a place that once boasted of its greatness. Too big to fail? Ha. Huh. Too big not to fail. We look at the empires of the world. We look at all kinds of things. There have been 21 major civilizations that were too big to fail, that have failed since the teaching of Obadiah. 21 major civilizations. Tell Enron that it's too big to fail. Tell Fannie Mae that they're too big to fail. Or you name whoever you want. Too big not to fail when you become proud and arrogant. The deceitfulness of leaning on material props is no small thing to God. See, he says in verse 2, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. And in verse 5, oh, what a disaster awaits you. So here they are trusting in rocks Trusting in heights, praising the heights, praising the rocks, instead of the God who makes the heights, the God who made the rocks, God, God, who barks out from heaven, I will make you small. Who can bring them down? The Lord can. The material man always outs himself by being enamored and believing in and putting his trust in the material. To place his confidence in the dying, in the temporary, and in what's passing away. And so you have this epitome of human nature portrayed for us here in the nation of Edom. Human nature, left unchecked as one writer puts it, is hardwired to live above the level of its own adequacy. You see, all of this was started by Satan. If you turn with me for a moment in, in, your, in your Bibles to uh, Isaiah, Isaiah verse, 
or Isaiah chapter 14, there's a declaration by the prophet Isaiah concerning the king of Babylon. But the king of Babylon is speaking out under the direct inspiration of Satan himself and is a stand-in caricature of the attitude of Satan. We read this in verse 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven. You see, when people get arrogant and proud, it's always about high. It's always about getting into the heights. It's always about being over someone. It's always about being in a lofty place. I will ascend to the heaven. I will rise, or I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. I, 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 I will do this. I will make myself this. I will accomplish this. I am so special. I am the greatest. And God says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Because what Satan started, Eve bit into in the Garden of Eden in full measure. Long before anybody discovered that uh, the the culture of of the rational mind that that would, and the relative mind that would attack the Word of God, Eve was demonstrating it in the Garden of Eden. The, The very first act of sin was an act of pride on the part of Eve, tempted by the father of pride himself, Satan, who came to her and said, uh, this thing about God's word, whereby he says there's a couple of trees that you can't eat from. Eve, come on. You have a brain. Think about it. Use your rational mind, Eve. God just wants to keep you away from something. You know better than God. God, wants to, God doesn't want you to eat that because you'll know the, the, the difference between good and evil. You'll, you'll have a knowledge of good and evil. He wants to keep that from you. You know better than his word. You're smarter than God. Go ahead. Eat the fruit. And so she did. And ever since that time, we have been sitting in judgment of the Word of God, in putting forth our rational thinking as if we know better than God. I want to tell you this morning, beloved, that in Protestant denominations all over this city, there are church services like this, where people like me are sitting in front of the congregation, inviting everyone to use their rational mind to make judgments against the Word of God. You judge for yourself what this this what God is saying. That was for a bygone culture. That might have been something that was important then, but that's not important now. You're smarter than the people back then. You don't need this word of God for you today. You can actually go a different direction. Use your mind. Be rational. And so all over this city, and if you want to understand why our Our country is going to hell in a handbasket. It's because all over this city, in Protestant denominational churches, 
Pastors are telling their congregation that they don't need to pay attention to God's word or take God's word seriously. In fact, they should sit in judgment of God's word like Eve did in the Garden of Eden. How did that work out for us? Pride of man, the pride of life, the fruit of deception is pride that you are better than God, that you know better than God, that you are stronger, that you can take care of yourself. I, I, I. And King Saul made par for the political course. What Satan started, Eve bit into, and King Saul made par for the political course. You remember King Saul? Remember before he became a king? Remember when he was being sought out and interviewed? He was hiding behind some boxes. And then he was promoted to king. You can read about this in 1 Samuel 15, verse 17. When he was promoted to king, he suddenly started to believe he was a king. And when he started to believe he was a king, he started to believe that he was a king over King God. And when God's word was handed down to him, he decided to use his rational mind and make a judgment on his own about God's word. And Samuel comes to him, the prophet, and says to him, Saul, in 1 Samuel 15, 17, once you were small in your own eyes, and I liked you a lot better then, and God liked you a lot better then too, and God has taken the kingdom away from you. God opposes the proud. You see, um, this fruit of deception, the pride of life, that I can provide, that I can find my own adequacy, is something that is inherent in us as humans. It is what we fight against. The idea that somehow our own independence and God are equally valid choices. And by the time we get there, we tip the scale that God is out and I'm in because I want to be independent because I'm adequate in myself. I have my own abilities and I want to act on those. I want to tell you, beloved, that every sin is sourced in pride. That's why God hates it so much. Satan himself, pride is ground zero for Satan. To find strength or security or success or significance in the material is the great danger of the human life. Money, position, possessions, place. I'm going to let you in on a little insider information into my life. If the Canadian currency were to drop into oblivion, or I guess go into hyperinflation, so that the Canadian money was worth virtually nothing... If the stock market completely collapsed, and if real estate totally tanked, I'm doomed for retirement. Not really. Not really. But that's how most of us are living. We live as if we can take it easy and breathe, breathe well, well, I've got money in the bank, I've got money in the stock market, I've got my RSPs, and I've got real estate, so, so I'm okay, I, I, I'm okay, I can look after myself, I, I'm going to be fine. 
I live on a high rock. We, we live where there's a canyon. You can't, the, the enemy can't get in. That place is vacant now. It's been vacant for hundreds and hundreds of years. There were two little boys. They were born twins. One little boy's name was Esau. The other little boy's name was Jacob. I almost forgot there for a second. Esau and Jacob. The one little guy who was named Esau was named Esau because he was red and hairy all over. That's what it says in Genesis 25. I'm not making this stuff up. And red in Hebrew is Edom. The other little boy was Jacob, who was later renamed Israel. I forgot. Same parents, Rebecca and Isaac. Same environment, same heritage, same grandfather, Abraham, the father of our faith. Different vision. That, by the way, moms and dads, was very significantly affected by the values of their parents. Esau had a taste for the material. He had a taste for the immediate. He was a hunter. Nothing wrong with hunters. Just want to throw that in there this morning. But he was a hunter. He had a taste for material things. Why? Because his father Isaac had a taste for wild game. And he loved to please his father. His father's greatest interest it would appear was not in the living God, but was in a good venison meal. His mother, on the other hand, influenced his brother Jacob. She seemed to have a vision for future and blessing and inheritance. And the little red boy, Esau, when he became a man and had interest only in the material, sold out his birthright to his twin brother who had interest in inheritance and blessing and future for a bowl of red stuff. That's what the Bible says. Genesis 25, 30. Thir uh, thir yeah, 30. He, 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 he sold out his birthright. He said to his brother, give me some of that red stuff. Red like to eat red stuff. And they lived in Petra, which is red. And the nation we called Edom called red. I'm just telling you the way it is. And so these twin brothers were two nations going in totally different directions based on totally different vision. Servant of God, servant of the future, servant of blessing and inheritance, servant of the immediate, servant of material, servant of pride in accomplishment, in self. Ultimately, though, 
by God's grace and for his own purposes. He breaks in on humanity because all of us prefer to go in Esau's direction. All of us are drawn to the material, are drawn to the immediate. We all are. But by God's grace, he breaks into humanity and breaks into human hearts. Human hearts that are set on bypassing the greatness and blessing and value of spiritual inheritance. And for his glory alone, rescues and rescued Jacob. And oh, what disaster, verse 5, is waiting for those who are steeped in their pride. So what does pride live like? These two little twin boys chase opposite destinies. Pride is as pride does. Pride pummels people into powerlessness. Let's read the text. Read in verse 10. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob. Listen to what they did. You will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Whether it was the Philistines who rolled through or whether it was the Babylonians who rolled through, the Edomites, the brother of Jacob, were first to join in the fight against their brothers. Should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune. Uh, by the way, for all of you Leaf fans, that's my verse of the day for me. Enough said. Otherwise, you're going against God's word. I'm just saying, I'm just putting it out there. Those of you who jumped the gun early today, I'm sorry for you. Nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble." If you want to understand the heart of God just a little bit, there is nothing that stirs him up more than disloyalty between brothers. Family. The family of God. You should not look down on your brother. You have raised your hand in violence against your brother. Who would do such a thing? And he talks here about you will be covered with shame. When we do something shameful, what is the first thing that we want to do? What is the first thing that Adam and Eve did when they did something shameful? They ran and hid. They covered their shame. That's what we do. We try to hide. When we do something wrong, the first thing we do is we try to hide it. We try to cover our shame. God says, I won't hear of it. I know what you have done. And I will clothe you with shame so that everyone can see it. 
The destructiveness of thinking you belong on the haughty heights is sure. Now, who's at risk for pride? Anyone. Anyone who's successful at all. And anyone who's ambitious or anyone who's deceived. And that makes all of us. That's why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, when he was talking about the three the, the thorns in his flesh. Remember he said, I, I, I'm just buffeted. I prayed out to the Lord. I've called out to the Lord. Please remove this thorn in the flesh. It was obviously something that was very, very incapacitating to him. It was something that he felt was in the way of his ministry, was in the way of his life. And, and, and what's the explanation? He finally comes to us to why God won't respond and, and remove what he asked God to do. You know? It says, I've finally come to the realization that God's not taking this away because I might become exalted myself, that I might become proud, and God forbid, Paul says, that I become proud. In fact, I'm willing to go through whatever agony God has for me so that I would not become proud, so that I would not be opposed by the living God. So insidious, so dangerous, so reckless is pride. The great temptations are for us to look for personal explanations and causes for our own success. Well, you know, I hate to brag, but I had a good schooling. Hey, I hate to to say this, but, uh, you know, I'm just more talented than you. I'm, I'm sorry, what can I say? Or I've worked harder. You should not look down on your brother, verse 12. Why? Verse 15, because as you have done, it will be done to you. In their case, they are striking out as a nation against the nation of Israel. And God doesn't forget, because the Philistines overran them, and because the Babylonians overran them, because the Persians overran them, and and, and because the Greeks overran them, and because the Romans overran them, and because secularism has overrun them, God hasn't forgotten about Israel and his people. Hypernationalism and greed fuel pride's weapons of mass destruction. Edom has broken a brotherly covenant. It's unheard of. And so God says, here's what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to remove your tactical advantage. Verse 3. You are big on your heights and all that. I'm bringing you down. I'm going to remove your strength. I'll make you small. Verse 2. I'm going to remove your economic advantage. In verse 7. I'm going to Take your allies away from you. Your hidden treasures are going to be pillaged. I'm going to remove your intellectual advantage from you. I'm going to strip you of all your wise men. I'm going to remove, and that's in verse 10 or 8. I'm going to remove your military advantage from you in verse 9. You think your rocks are going to help you? You think your caves are going to help you? You think your small canyon is going to help you? You think your military is going to help you? You think your treasury is going to help you? I can remove all of it in in an instant. God, God is declaring war on pride. Beware. Beware those politicians 
placating the public popularity versus doing what is right so that they can keep their lofty positions. Beware politicians who are strip mining the state of all its assets to keep yourself in power and, and mortgaging our children's future and our grandchildren's future and our great-grandchildren's future all because you want to get elected. Beware to those employees who are robbing or taking advantage of their godly employees, treating them unfairly in income and forcing them to participate in harmful and immoral values of a godless state. Beware those healthcare leaders who are forcing healthcare workers or challenging healthcare workers or threatening healthcare workers with their jobs if they don't join in on the immoral choices that our healthcare system is making at the front end of life and at the back end of life. Beware of those leaders in education who are forcing or trying to force our teachers in order to keep their jobs to teach things that are morally reprehensible to the living God. Beware of those who are in lofty positions in the legal uh, administration of this country who are forcing lawyers and judges to judge against Almighty God's law. Beware to all of those citizens, and particularly those churches, that fail to act in favor of the abused and those who are taken advantage of, failing to help the up to 50% of those who are walking the streets who are exiles from domestic abuse. They're not there on the streets because they're not talented or because they don't want to get ahead. Many of them, in fact, 50% of them are there because they live in hell. Beware of the church. Beware of the Christian who has no heart or no care for those in those situations. Beware of the church that doesn't care about social injustice wherever it surfaces. Because we are being told, as you have done, it will be done to you in verse 15. And so he says, stop it. Stop doing this to my people. You know, if you've been crying out to the Lord saying, how can you stand by and see me in this situation, abused by those in power, by those who are prideful and arrogant? Oh God, how can you stand by? God is saying, I'm, I'm not standing by for long. I don't forget. I'm calling out, stop it. On the day that you stood aloof, listen, there are, there are um, a number of, of, of uh, statements that are made here and descriptions that are made here that are progressions of pride. Beware. Listen, I, do a, I took this, this text very seriously in my own life. And there's some changes that have to happen from this text. No, I'm not at war with any nation. But there are things here that caused me to pause and think and reflect. Look at, there's a progression here. Here's what happens when pride starts to take hold of your life. You stand aloof. You somehow, while strangers carried off of wealth, while other people are, you, you somehow get this idea that you're above. Look at where I've advanced to. Look at, look at my position. Look at my title. And suddenly you stand aloof and say, it's not my problem. It's probably, they probably deserve where they're at. 
And that moves to looking down. You should not look down on your brother. Listen, there isn't a one of us in here today, in whatever position we're in, that got there because of ourselves. You might think so, and you might be deceived, the fruit of deception. You might be thinking so, but there isn't a one of us here. Listen, the fact that we're breathing, the fact that we have health, the fact that we have intellect, the fact of where we were born, the country we were born in, all of that is by the grace of God. There is nothing in this room, there is no one in this room that can boast about where they are. We are where we are because of the immense Grace of God. And the idea of looking down on any other person in any other place in this whole globe is completely obscene to God. It's obscenity. You look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune. You rejoice over we start gloating at trouble that comes to other people. We start boasting so much in the day of their trouble like somehow I'm something special and then it moves from an attitude of I'm special to actually joining in in the pummeling of people if pride gets a hold of your life you will start to hurt people you start to pummel you start to join in look at they're they're joining the march through the gates of my people you're barging in on your brother Aiding the invaders, joining in, seizing property that wrongfully, that, 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 that's been wrongfully taken. Seizing their wealth at the end of verse 13. And then, then uh, 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 it's, it's incomprehensible to God what they would do next. They, they would stand and wait at the crossroads and uh, any who were escaping or fleeing or refugees from this onslaught of, uh, of wickedness, they would wait at the crossroads to pick them off and seize them and hand them over, blocking escape routes, unthinkable atrocities, Say, oh, that's war. We're not, we're not, what are you talking about? Church brothers and sisters, beware. How do you treat someone who you don't agree with? Do you get all high and mighty? We regularly allow attitudes of competition to come into the church. I could teach better than him, or I can preach better than him. I could sing better than her. We are all part of a gifts sweepstake. Anything we have was given to us by Almighty God. Public shaming of those other brothers and sisters in Christ who don't happen to believe like we believe in theological matters, not in the core essence of the gospel, but in theological matters that are difficult to be certain. Be careful. The public shaming of each other because we're a little bit different. I'm talking about core theology. I'm talking about uncertain areas of theology. And then how we treat someone who's fallen into sin. We treat them arrogantly. 
as opposed to what we don't do for people who are proud? So what does the church do? What should God's people do as we wind this up? Might does not certainly make right. The text says here, the day of the Lord is near for all the nations. It's imminent. God is saying, listen, if you're crying out to me, I want you all to know that, that the day of the Lord is not far away. It's not as if the day of the Lord is, is at the edge of the platform here and we're all back here. When the word here imminent means you are already at the, at the edge. The day of the Lord is right here and all we're doing now is we're walking along the line. At any moment, a reckoning is coming and God will be vindicated and everybody who's proud will be brought down and those who are humble will be lifted up. Know this, God is speaking out to those on one side or the other, those who are servants of the living God practicing humility versus those who are stuck on themselves and full of pride and arrogance living in their own strength. should God's people do? The deliverance of the powerless, the humble, and the abused is as sure as God is. And it all starts in God's family. As Pastor um, Nick uh, rightly encouraged us last week, um, as you wind up the end of this text, you'll notice that God speaks out to them, go ahead, just as you drank on my holy hill, Jerusalem, so all the nations will drink continually, and they will drink and drink. Go ahead, keep getting drunk, all you arrogant, all you proud, thinking you're so spectacular and you're so secure. Go ahead. But I want you to know this. In the day of reckoning, it will be as if you never had been. Look at how the verse finishes. And be as if they had never been. Go look at Petra. See how well the Edomites succeeded. Go look. But for my people, Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. And verse 21, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. God will be vindicated. God's people will be vindicated. The humble will be lifted up. God opposes the proud. So what does the church have to do? Four things. If my people, called by my name. Is anybody in here called by Jesus' name? Are there any of you out there? Well, it's quiet. Come on, anybody out there in the name of Jesus? Anybody? Are you out there? Okay. If my people, called by my name, will humble themselves. What does that mean, humble themselves? It means to acknowledge that there is nothing in me to boast about. I will boast in the Lord and in the Lord alone. And I will acknowledge that everything that I have and everything that I am is entirely dependent on the greatness and grace of God. I acknowledge that. I humble myself. And pray, secondly. And by the way, prayer is an act of humility. You show me someone who doesn't pray much and I'll show you a proud person. Because prayer is evidence of your humility. 
When you are having to call out to God, God, I need you this second. God, I need you this minute. God, I need you this hour. God, I need you this day. God, I need you this week. God, I need you this month. It's when we walk in the presence of God in prayer, acknowledging that, God, if you don't show up, if you don't help me, if you aren't taking care of me, I'm going down. That's what prayer is all about. And prayer is humility. Humble yourself and pray. My people called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Third thing, seek my face. What does that mean? It, it means that you won't sit in judgment over the word of God. You will not buy into the rationalist culture we live in, the, the, uh, the relative culture we live in that says, oh, look, it, you have a rational mind and you can, you can judge God's word against your own thinking. Rather, to seek the face of God is to say, oh, God, what is your will? What is your way? What is your word? Because I want to know you. And I want to know your will. And I want to know your ways. And I want to know your word. I want to follow hard after you. That's seeking the face of God. And will turn from their wicked ways forth. That means an abrupt turn. Not just sorry. You're not sorry. You, you aren't sorry unless you stop your sin. It means turn from your wicked ways and go in the totally opposite direction. I'm tired of hearing repentance is about being sorry. It's not about being sorry. It's about turning from your sin and turning away from your sin and following hard after Jesus Christ. Those four things are required. And if you do those four things, which are acts of the humble. Then it says, I will hear. If you do not do those four things, God doesn't hear your prayers. I will hear and I will forgive and once I have heard the church and forgiven the church, then I will heal, heal Canada. That's why I said to you two weeks ago that the greatest danger for the world and the universe is the church. An unhealthy church is a danger to the universe. But a healthy church is a healing bomb to the world. God opposes the proud and lifts up the humble. And the church must set its own house in order and then speak out against all other human abuses. Father, we pause to pray because we battle pride. If we are honest, and as you are searching our hearts today to see if there's anything wicked in us, there's pride that needs to go. I pray, O oh God, that in the warning of your word and the teaching of your word, in the way 
that you show us from your word. We will today seek your face, humble ourselves, pray, and turn from our wicked ways, O oh God. For Jesus' sake, amen. This week it pleased Almighty God to remove from this world one of the great Christian statesmen, the great Billy Graham. If he were here this morning, he would say, Rick, don't ever call me the great Billy Graham again. Because anyone who knew him would say that if you tried to call him something special or Dr. Graham, where I say, no, call me Billy. We can't be friends unless you call me Billy. He understood the meaning of the level playing field of God's family. We are all trophies of His grace. In 1978, 40 years ago, he was interviewed on 100 Huntley Street. I saw a video of it this week. And in that video, he encouraged us Canadians, in particular in the area of Toronto, the GTA, and said that Canada was strategically positioned as a people to make a global impact for Christ because we're a, a welcoming people and we're a people who are welcomed because we're a humble people. We're a peace-loving people. We care about the world. We don't have a lot of enemies who are holding grudges toward us. And so we are uniquely positioned to take the gospel of the world. And at that time, 40 years ago, he said, remember, remember that there was a time, he said, when Toronto was called Toronto the Good. You know why? Because so many people went to church on Sundays. Do anybody remember when Toronto was called Toronto the Good? It's not Toronto the Good anymore. It's Toronto the Very Wicked now. But I don't think it's because of all the sinners in Toronto. I think this reality is 40 years of a church that has become somewhat arrogant and pompous and sinful. Pride. If my people, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wickedness. Then I will hear. Then I will forgive. And then I'll heal Toronto and Canada. It starts at Calvary. Works its way out. Father, I pray because it starts with me and my brother, my sister, my church, the family of God, oh Lord, may we be usable to you that this world can be reached for Christ in our lifetime for Jesus' sake. Amen. <laughs>